In this Vet Girl podcast, we interview Dr. Steve Mailer. Dr. Mailer is a board-certified surgeon, staff surgeon at Hope Veterinary Specialists, and one of the founding members of Veterinarian Recommended Solutions. Dr. Mailer is going to review how to perform a splenectomy, real-life approach to doing that. I'm honored to have Steve here with us today. So, Steve, take it away. Let us talk about splenectomy. Oh, Garrett, thank you so much. I hope everybody can uh, can hear me okay. Uh, with that, you know, I think splenectomy is is one of those procedures that a lot of us take for granted. Uh, we maybe saw one or did one in, in veterinary school, and then we're immediately expected to be able to uh, go out there in the world and perform these procedures. And I think we're surrounded by colleagues that that say, oh, it was a quick splenectomy, and, you know, I've got a hemoabdomen. It should just take me a few minutes. It'll be a quick splenectomy. I think this is a procedure that um, has an opportunity to be very successful in all of our hands, uh, but it's also a procedure that can be fraught with a lot of complication if we don't follow a couple of, uh, of key principles. So my real goal here is to talk about the fact that there are a lot of etiologies that would uh, you know, justify performing a splenectomy, benign masses, malignancies, some autoimmune diseases, splenic trauma, splenic torsions. Uh, the list goes on and on. The real goal, though, is, is how do we deal with uh, the spleen in general, and, and how can we make this as safe um, as possible uh, and have the best possible outcome for, for that pet? So sometimes spleens look like this. I think those of us that have been practicing long enough have certainly seen spleens like this, and they weigh in 10, 15, sometimes 20 pounds. You can see up in the little corner there, this really is the spleen. I think that was the tail of the spleen in this patient. There, of course not going to all look like this. And sometimes, again, the masses are tiny. Sometimes there's no mass at all, and it's a, it's a spleen that's been uh, heavily traumatized that we can't get the, bleed, uh, stop, get the bleeding to stop conservatively. But I think, again, regardless of the etiology, I want to just take a quick peek here at the vascular anatomy um, really associated with splenectomy. And this is, I think, the most important part of this entire, entire uh, webinar because there are a lot of different ways to perform a splenectomy. And if we just quickly look at the vasculature, the main splenic artery is coming off of the celiac artery, that first big branch of the abdominal aorta. And it will give branches to the spleen, but it also gives rise to some of the short gastric arteries. Those are those vessels that oftentimes will get torn in that GDB patient. But it doesn't stop there. It, it gives off another large set of branches to the greater curvature of the stomach and forms the left gastroepiploic artery. So this is the main blood supply to the left side of the greater curvature of the stomach. Also giving some branches off the splenic artery are the pancreatic arteries supplying a portion of the left limb of the pancreas. Again, more branches going directly to the spleen and then another large set of branches feeding the tail of the spleen but also giving rise to the vessels of the greater omentum. So there's a lot going on here. This is a pretty, uh, pretty busy picture, and, and the splenic artery and the splenic vein, for that matter, do a lot more than just drive nutrients to and away from the spleen. Now, in the cases of splenic torsion, all of this kind of gets thrown out the window. You can't see any of this anatomy. The omentum gets wrapped up into the splenic torsion. The left limb of the pancreas is usually up in there. And so trying to identify arteries and veins and, and be uh, meticulous about your dissection and, and ligation uh, really goes out the window. But for all other justifications for splenectomy or all their indications for splenectomy, uh, we really want to take a quick look at our, our opportunities here to do things as safe as possible. The first thing I want to focus on is, is I can just tell you that the, the number one cause of complications that I see as a surgeon 
related to abdominal exploratory is the incision being just too small. It's, it's where things get torn and where things get missed. So the one thing about the exploratory is, of course, we always want to have an incision that's large enough to see the peritoneal cavity and all of the viscera. But I think most importantly, so that we don't miss anything, it should be systematic. You should perform your exploratory the same way, uh, the same time in every single case. I personally start with all of the extra GI structures. I'll do liver and gallbladder. Uh, I'll do the spleen. I'll do the left and the right kidney. I'll track down the ureters and the bladder. Uh, and then I'll come back and start looking at, at my GI tract, stomach, duodenum, jejunum ileum, uh, cecum colon, and, and my, my pancreas as well. Um, so again, I, that's just how I do it. It doesn't matter where you start and where you end as long as you uh, always do it the same way and, and don't forget anything. And I don't know how well this shows up, but this is a dog laying on its back. You can see a previous scar uh, here in the abdominal cavity here on the ventral surface of, of this dog's uh, body. It's a xiphoid up top there and the pubis down below. And again, this is a very typical, I think, incision for cases that may have undergone splenectomy or, or maybe a foreign body surgery. And it's very difficult to be able to assess this patient's liver and stomach and caudally the, uh, you know, the, the bladder. So it's so important, although it takes a little bit longer and it's a little bit extra trauma uh, to perform a full xiphoid to just cranial to the pubis uh, skin incision and sub Q incision and linea incision, it makes the procedure a lot safer. You're able to see everything, you're not pulling on things, things aren't gonna get torn and you can do a really good exploratory and make sure that being in there uh, you know, serves its purpose, that we're not missing anything. Otherwise, it's really like playing Marco Polo with, with the abdominal cavity, and, and I don't think any of us enjoy doing that in surgery. As far as preparing for the splenectomy patient, again, very large clip and prep. Really be prepared for anything, especially in the hemoabdomen patient. Yes, a lot of times the source of the hemoabdomen may be the spleen, but in the middle of the night, you may not know for sure. You may have access to um, uh, an ultrasound machine and you may be suspicious it's the spleen, but really being prepared for anything is very important. So large clip and prep, very large drape, be ready to, to have that incision be from xiphoid to almost to the pubis if needed. One thing that I want to stress about the hemoabdomen patient, if you make your skin incision from the xiphoid to the pubis and cut through your sub-Q, xiphoid to pubis, if you start opening your linea alba at the level of the xiphoid and stop at the level of the umbilicus, you're actually not in the peritoneal cavity yet. The falciform ligament has a peritoneal reflection on it. And the reason why I bring this up is that in the case of a, of a hemoabdomen, one thing that is really nice to be able to control is the amount of acute blood loss from the peritoneal cavity uh, for two reasons. One, it makes a huge mess. And so if you have the availability of suction in your OR, being able to, to, to slowly release that blood um, doesn't make such a mess. But number two, you're not going to have a very rapid change in your intra-abdominal pressure. And it does seem to help uh, with, with blood pressure in surgery and, and a perceived what may be very acute hypovolemia. Uh, as, as the pressure comes off of that caudal vena cava and some of the, the portal vein and some of the abdominal viscera, there's a really nice mechanism to control that loss of blood. So what I do is I open up to the umbilicus and then I'll take my pool suction tip or whatever suction tip device you have and aim that through the falciform into the caudal abdomen heading towards the bladder. Again, this allows for a more controlled release of the pressure in the abdomen and getting some of that blood out of there so it doesn't spill all over the place uh, when you're opening the belly. Now, in some cases, the spleen is going to be way too large and, the, and maybe even be bleeding too much to do a true 
abdominal exploratory prior to your splenectomy. But if this is not a hemoabdomen, it's not actively bleeding, it's a relatively small mass, um, I try to do my exploratory first. This is a diaphragmatic met and a patient with wound up having splenic hemangiosarcoma. Uh, so sometimes, you know, you, you get the spleen out because you have to do it first and then you start doing your exploratory and you find all of these other things. I try to do it first if I can, but again, if the spleen's in the way because the mass is so large or the spleen's incredibly engorged um, or it's actively bleeding, I'll skip my exploratory and pursue that uh, when the spleen is out of the way and the bleeding has, has stopped. So again, this is, uh, you know, we all look at spleens like this. It's a big mass. It's bleeding. We don't want to miss anything else in the peritoneal cavity. In the background there, you can see there's, there's a, a mass in the liver. Now, this wound up being a benign splenic mass and a benign liver mass, lucky dog, uh, with a hemoabdomen. But we want to make sure we don't miss anything, that we biopsy everything and, and uh, do the job the best we can. So when we talk about the actual splenectomy techniques, I like to split it up mentally into a few different options. One, complete splenectomy versus partial splenectomy. I will say that there's very few indications for a partial splenectomy, especially in an adult dog that's, that may be otherwise healthy. This may be a case where you have a bad, um, you know, some blunt abdominal trauma and a hemoabdomen that you can't control conservatively, and you get in and the spleen is cut in half um, or severely fractured. That may be a situation where you staple off or suture close the portion of the spleen and that animal gets to save the rest of it. But in general, if you found a mass on the spleen, I don't recommend a partial splenectomy. A lot of the solitary appearing masses actually have diffuse disease throughout the spleen. Uh, we want to try to obtain a good surgical margin if it's malignant. So I always, almost always will recommend a complete splenectomy. And then when we're really assessing the complete splenectomy options, we're really focused between two, two options here, a hyalur splenectomy and what I refer to as a three-point ligation or a four-point ligation. Some people also call that the rapid splenectomy. It's gaining a lot of popularity right now. We'll, we'll talk about the pros and cons of each. When we're referring to the splenectomy techniques and dealing with the vasculature, you know, we're really talking about using hand suturing, which is uh, the tried and true, uh, some clips and staplers, which we'll talk about, and then we'll briefly mention some, some vessel sealing technology that uh, that has uh, really become more available and more affordable for a lot of us. Again, regardless of the cause of the indication for splenectomy minus the splenic torsion, there really is no rhyme or reason to prefer Hyler over other techniques. The Hyler splenectomy can be done in large masses, small masses, actively bleeding masses, um, again, diffuse infiltrative disease. The only time you can't really do a Hyler splenectomy, is, again, is the splenic torsion. You never want to untwist the splenic torsion. The reperfusion injury from that can be fatal, if not uh, severely compromising to the patient. So we do the best we can with the splenic torsion and uh, do some mass ligations. But all other forms of disease of the spleen that would require splenectomy, a hyalur splenectomy can be performed. And it really comes down to your preference for vessel ligation techniques. What I will tell you, my opinion uh, may sound old fashioned, even with all the technologies we have today, suture ligation is by far the most secure method we have for a successful splenectomy. It is potentially the most time consuming, uh, but it is the safest. And monofilament absorbable suture material is ideal for this. Uh, whether it's PDS, whether it's monocryl, whether it's some other brand that you prefer, as long as it's a monofilament absorbable. Uh, and the thing with size here is that if you think about it, the more material that makes up a knot of the suture, the less knot security you actually have. So for an example, 
2-aught PDS has less knot security than 3-aught PDS. A surgeon's throw has less knot security than a square knot. So the goal of suture ligation here is to choose a relatively small gauge suture. In the case of splenic ligation or splenic artery and vein ligation, you're probably looking at a 3-aught suture in most dogs, maybe 4-aught in some smaller patients. Um, I want to do just a nice, simple square knot on those vessels to maximize my knot security in this case. So in general, depending upon the suture material you're using, you may only need three good throws or four good throws of a, of a very simple square knot type pattern to really achieve good knot security on a what I'll call a skeletonized vessel, a vessel that's free of a lot of fat or other tissues. So again, it's, it may be hard to, to um, conceive of this just up front, but again, the more material that makes up the knot, the less secure the knot. So a surgeon's throw and a miller's knot actually have less knot security than a square knot. Maybe not less friction ability, but less knot security. So really important when you're dealing with suture technique. Um, this is just a good example. The star on the picture is in reference to the, the head being in that direction. You can see the liver and gallbladder on the far edge there by the star. This is a nice big splenic mass. This is a perfect example of there's no way you're going to do an exploratory on this patient prior to getting this mass out. And, and it's really talking about these really large tumors. These, these tumors, again, they're heavy. They're 10, 12 pounds, sometimes more. And without having an assistant, these can be a little bit dangerous. Without having the abdomen fully exposed, these can be a little dangerous. Just the weight of this tumor alone is putting a lot of tension on those arteries and veins. And I've, I've been in surgery where these have torn the arteries and veins um, off of the celiac artery or closer to the vena cava on the venous side. Uh, so having somebody in there just to hold the tension off of this. Where it also happens is when you go to actually suture ligate these vessels that are under a lot of tension during your first throw, um, it's not, a, you know, not uncommon that you could actually tear the vasculature. So you don't want to have a lot of tension on the pedicles of the spleen. So just having somebody have their hand there just to support the spleen uh, while you go through and, and start ligating by hand uh, the large vessels feeding this thing can be very useful and just make this a little bit safer of a procedure for everybody. Commonly with splenic masses, especially chronic ones or, or ones that may have bled a little bit, you get these mental adhesions, and these are frustrating to deal with. You have to kind of figure out uh, if you're dealing with the head or the tail of the spleen and where these adhesions are coming from. But regardless, I would never tear these adhesions off of the spleen. They're there for a reason. They're, the omentum really acted as a Band-Aid in that case to prevent massive bleeding. Uh, and so what I do is I actually take some of that omentum off with the splenectomy. And I do that just with some mass suture ligation. Good square knots is fine. This is a hand ligation technique here for a hyalur splenectomy. You start with one side, the tail or, or the head of the spleen, and you come through and vessel by vessel, you, you put a couple of uh, hand ligations on there. Yes, it is time consuming, but again, in my opinion, it's the most secure form of vessel ligation. So if the patient is not doing well under anesthesia, it's an unstable patient, there may be another option to get the spleen out faster, but if you have the luxury of time, uh, I prefer the hyalur splenectomy over all other techniques. And again, this is uh, just an example going one by one, suture by suture. Now, you may tie one good square knot and then use a clamp on the splenic side of your ligation uh, so that you're not putting two, lig two ligations or three ligations and saving some time there. Uh, we'll talk in a little bit about using some hemoclips to help speed this process up a little bit. You can see the use of a lot of uh, clamps in this case just to uh, make things go a little bit faster. 
Um, but regardless, if you're good at hand suturing, you can actually get the spleen out with a Hyler technique pretty quickly. Now, some of you may have played around with hemostatic clips, ligaclips, clips, surgic clips. There's a lot of different brands out there. I would say if you're going to use clips for any type of major procedure like a splenectomy, I would make sure you have a variety of lengths and sizes of those clips. Because to be successful using clips, which can speed up your surgery time in a hyalur splenectomy, you really want to make sure that that clip isn't too long or too big because it won't actually stay on the vessel. It'll slide up and down that pedicle. Or if it's too short, it may pop off the pedicle or actually not be clamping or occluding the entire vessel itself. In general, theoretically, you want to try to clip the artery and vein separately. That really comes from the human side where uh, arterial venous anastomoses can form and fistulas can form and lead to some hemodynamic uh, complications. Don't really see that very often in animals. So if you're in a hurry, the patient's not doing well, and you want to use some clips to speed things up, I think that's very appropriate. I will tell you that I don't use hemostatic clips as the only source of vessel ligation for splenectomy. I will get at least one good suture ligation on the vessel, and then maybe a clip as a backup. Again, the, the, the concept here is of the hyalur splenectomy is now we're not taking out and damaging the vessels of the left gastroepiploic. We're maintaining that blood supply to the stomach. We're definitely not going to be damaging the uh, arteries to the left limb of the pancreas. We probably will still be um, removing some of the vasculature to the greater omentum, but there's so much collateral circulation to the greater omentum, I don't worry about that. This is a cat splenectomy. In this case, I, mean, I am using clips. Uh, for the entire job. These are very small vessels, very appropriately sized clips in this case, really perfect for that, that, vascul that vasculature. And I'm putting a clip at the level of the spleen so there's no back bleeding when I transect the pedicle and keeping one clip in the abdomen. These were my younger years. I was a little bit uh, cavalier here. I would, again, today, I would probably put one good suture ligation on here as well and not just leave clips as the only mechanism for uh, ligation. Uh, this, this gets a little bit messy, but this is what some um, people prefer when they're doing splenectomy. If you have enough hemostats and clamps, this again can speed your technique up where you're putting a hand ligation on the vessel that's staying in the body and then using a, a clamp um, towards the level of the spleen on that vessel and start transecting your vasculature all the way through. So what you wind up with is a spleen that has, you know, 10 or 12 um, hemostats attached to it. Again, if you've got a pack with all kinds of hemostats and you want to quickly move through a hyalur splenectomy, that's certainly one mechanism to do it. Some of you may have seen or heard of the ligate divide stapler or the LDS. And when I was a resident and Garrett and I were playing around in surgery uh, back in the day, these, these were a lot of fun. What, the, what this stapler does is it lays down two clips and then it cuts between them. So it, it, it divides your vessel for you. And this can be very fast for a hyalur splenectomy. I would never use this on any large vessels, but vessels that are maybe two, three, maybe even up to four millimeters in diameter, I'd be okay with this. The problem that I had with the LDS stapler, although it provided a very fast hyalur splenectomy, as I was lavaging the abdomen at the end of the procedure, I'd see a lot of these clips floating in my lavage solution that they were no longer sitting on the vessel. So it made me a little bit nervous and I've moved away from using that stapler. But some people swear by it, they love the stapler, and again, it, it adds an expense to surgery, but it does save you a lot of time on the anesthesia side, and again, you can still perform a hyalur splenectomy safely with it. And that's what those clips look like uh, that'll be stuck on the splenic side. So one clip stays in with the patient, 
one clip will be uh, staying with the spleen. So in, in, in summary, for the Hyler technique, I think the pros are that it really is very safe. A good suture ligation is the way to go. There's less risk of surgical complication post-op regards to bleeding. That's the most secure vessel ligation technique. The problem is it is time consuming. So now you're adding, adding anesthesia time, maybe to an unstable patient, and you are using more materials. In a lot of cases, you're leaving foreign material, in this case suture, in the peritoneal cavity. So a, a technique that I'm hearing a lot about that people are going around lecturing on, you certainly will hear this about this technique at emergency conferences and emergency lectures, the three-point or four-point ligation, also known as the rapid splenectomy. Again, this is a, this is a picture here of a, a splenic torsion case. This is a really rapid splenectomy. You don't have many options here. You've got to take that whole pedicle down, and, uh, and there's not much more to do than that. But when you look at the indications for the three-point technique or the rapid splenectomy, most people would say that they use them for bleeding splenic masses, um, an unstable patient, maybe the GDB, maybe the hemoabdomen that's not well stabilized uh, preoperatively. And, and that's okay. I'm not horribly against doing something that saves a significant amount of time on anesthesia. I just think we have to understand what it is that we're actually doing. So I come back to the vascular anatomy here. The three-point technique involves one giant ligation that does take out the left gastroepipoic artery to the stomach and those short gastrics. The next ligation will take out your greater omentum vasculature, which again is not a big deal. But depending on your ability to visualize where those pancreatic arterial branches are coming off that main splenic artery, you may be taking out one or both of those pancreatic arterial branches. I will tell you it's not the end of the world. There's plenty of collateral circulation to the pancreas, but I don't like inducing this intentionally. So Again, this is a very fast technique, um, and this is a case where you're ligating vessels that are hidden in large amounts of fat and omental-like tissue. So you're not going to be able to truly see these vessels, and you're hoping that your suture is tight enough and strong enough to not only compress the fat, but to also engage the vessel that's in the middle of all that fat or omentum. So this is where I will use transfixation suture techniques. Again, I may bring in a Miller's knot, understanding that a Miller's knot or a surgeon's throw um, is a good friction knot, but the knot security itself is decreased. So, you know, these, these, are, these are just decisions that we have to make in surgery when we're deciding to ligate large pedicles. We may do this, for instance, with a spay in an obese patient. You know, that ovarian pedicle sometimes is very difficult to identify the individual artery and vein. It's surrounded by tons of adipose tissue, and we just take these giant ligations and hope that they're tight enough along that fat that they're compressing the artery and vein long enough to form a clot. So again, this is a sped up video of doing a three-point technique, grabbing the uh, gastroepiploic and the, the short gastrics and the main splenic artery and vein being cut there, and then a last ligation here around the vasculature feeding the spleen and the greater omentum. Again, very fast technique. We just have to understand that we're, we're cutting some corners here, in my opinion. These aren't as secure vascular ligations. We are causing some collateral damage, potentially, to the vessels that are feeding other structures in the abdomen. You'll wind up with a lot of extra tissue uh, coming out with your spleen in, in the uh, three-point or rapid splenectomy case, some extra omentum, uh, some extra fat. Again, not a big deal as long as we understand the, the shortcomings here. Again, I'm a huge fan of the hyalur splenectomy because I know that I'm not damaging any of those other uh, major vessels in those cases. And if this is a bleeding spleen, 
and your justification for doing the rapid splenectomy is, hey, it's bleeding, I want to get the bleeding stopped, there's another alternative. You can take large caramels or doyens or any type of hemostat and clamp the vessels of the spleen close to the spleen to arrest the bleeding. Now the spleen may continue to still bleed, it's an engorged organ uh, and it's going to continue to ooze, but you shut off the arterial supply to the spleen so the patient's not actively losing more blood. Now you have control over the situation and you don't have to do a rapid splenectomy. You can do a fast hyalur splenectomy instead. So, so think about that when you're approaching the hemoabdomen patient and you get in there and the spleen is actively bleeding, you have an opportunity here, instead of doing this rapid splenectomy technique, again, bring in your clamps, clamp the vessels close to the level of the spleen, now the bleeding has stopped, and you can take your time and do a nice hyalur splenectomy. So just another option there for you. Again, the pros and cons of the rapid splenectomy, again, this is very rapid, significantly less materials used, but it's a less secure form of vessel ligation. And for me, if this is a GDV patient and I'm doing a splenectomy on that patient, think about it, the patient's already had a significant loss of integrity of its blood supply to its stomach wall, and now we're taking away the left gastroepiploic artery. So I don't like doing this technique in the GDV patient. There are some other more rapid techniques that don't involve the risk of knocking out some of those vessels. So it's just something to, to consider when you're dealing with some of these maybe more unstable patients that do need a splenectomy. So in some cases, it is this decision between a hyalur versus a rapid splenectomy, but there is such a thing as the rapid hyalur splenectomy. And for those of you that work in practices, I apologize for the sound there. For those of you that work in practices that, um, that have access to vessel sealing devices like the ligature or the Irby or the N-seal device, there's a lot of them out there. They're certainly more affordable now. This seals the collagen and elastin fibers in blood vessels and then transects the blood vessel for you. So this is an opportunity to do a very rapid, very safe hyalur splenectomy if you have access to this technology. It's, it really is a revolutionary type technology. Although it's just bipolar electrosurgery, it will seal vessels up to seven millimeters in diameter. So again, it's a great alternative for those of us that, that do a lot of abdominal surgery or a lot of emergency surgery. I would certainly consider investing or having your practice invest in a device like that. We charge $100 to the client every time we use the device and it actually starts to pay for itself very quickly. Again, now you're not using any suture or any clips or any staples and it really decreases your anesthesia time and you save money on the back end there. And just one quick thing on, on hemoabdomen patients, you know, I, I have guessed wrong as many times as I've guessed right about the etiology of the splenic mass, whether it's a hemoabdomen or not. And I think numbers get thrown around there for these patients. I, I, you know, we hear a lot that, that hemoabdomens, you know, 80% of them or 70% of them are hemangiosarcomas. I, I actually don't think that's true. I do think that there's a 50-50 shot in a hemoabdomen that it's, that it's going to be hemangiosarcoma. I think it's a higher percentage that are malignant, but there are some malignant splenic tumors that we actually cure with surgery. Some of these solitary lymphomas, leiomyosarcomas, liposarcomas, we actually can be, can be curative with the surgical uh, procedure. So I don't, I don't condemn these dogs with, with hemoabdomens. Uh, plus, even if it is hemangiosarcoma, my gosh, these dogs feel so much better so fast after surgery, after getting that spleen out, they get home. And, and a lot of these pet owners don't regret that decision. I've seen a lot of nasty looking masses like some of these in the picture here that I'm convinced are gonna be hemangiosarcoma and I could not have been more wrong. They're, 
benign lesions, they're hematomas, and uh, those dogs go on to live, you know, very nice long lives. So I'm not saying don't be honest with the pet owner. There's a risk here that these could be cancerous and sometimes a very bad form of cancer. I really don't like condemning these dogs just because they, they have a bleeding splenic mass. This is just a bizarre case I actually cut pretty recently. Um, the dog was going to be condemned uh, based on ultrasound. It was a hemoabdomen. And there was a splenic mass and would appear to be a very large lymph node associated with the spleen. Interestingly, we got in there. This dog had a history of trauma as a puppy, which it did not have surgery for. Histologically, this spleen was actually cut in half at some point in this dog's life. And the, the ball in the picture here was actually this partial spleen that had actually developed its own splenic torsion and a benign mass on the parent spleen. So this dog was actually cured um, with surgery, removal of, of both, both of its spleens, I guess. So you never know what you're gonna wind up with when you get into some of these patients. So take home points, really. I really prefer, I think, on a safety level, the Hyler technique when you can do it over the three-point or the rapid splenectomy. The rapid splenectomy is not a bad technique, but it is not my my go-to technique. Unless the patient, again, is very unstable, we've got to get out of there quickly. Um, I try to preserve the vasculature to the rest of the abdominal cavity and get through that hyalur splenectomy as, as quickly as I can. Again, don't forget that you can always use those temporary clamping methods for an actively bleeding spleen to stop the arterial blood supply to the spleen and then take your time. You've controlled the hemorrhage. Do your hyalur splenectomy. I do still think hand suturing is the most secure, although I've gotten very lazy in my older age and I do enjoy using the vessel sealer, but, uh, but hand ligation is something I still fall back on from time to time. I will just make a quick note here to always use radiopaque sponges and count your sponges, especially for your hemoabdomen cases. The uh, probably dozen or so patients I've been referred for retained surgical sponges were all due to a hemoabdomen in a case where the sponges aren't counted before and after, and radiopaque sponges were not used. Those of you that have been in a hemoabdomen, you know it, it, gets, it gets messy very quickly, and it's, it'd be very easy to lose a, a blood-soaked sponge in the peritoneal cavity. So my big take-home with this, really with any abdominal surgery that you're doing for any reason, is really think about making that switch to radiopaque sponges, and do that quick sponge count prior to and after surgery. And if your sponge count comes off after surgery, the nice thing about radiopaque sponges is you can roll right into radiology, take a quick lateral abdominal radiograph, and make sure you don't see a sponge sitting in the peritoneal cavity. Postoperatively, I don't have a, uh, you know, a cookbook, if you will, for every single splenectomy, but every case is going to have their own needs. But overall, my first priority is analgesia in these guys, volume support if it's needed, uh, a minimum database at least after the splenectomy. PCV and solids is ideal if you can get an extended database. Um, that's great. I usually repeat that if everything's going well. Maybe a second one at six to eight hours post-op just to make sure everything's looking good. Um, with any splenic disease and any indication to perform splenectomy, you're always going to worry about potential arrhythmias. There, there are myocardial depressing factors and other types of things that the spleen will be releasing or have released into the body. And there is this interaction between these ventricular arrhythmias that may develop and, uh, and splenectomy, regardless of the underlying disease. Most of the time, it is not something that we treat. We just keep a close eye on it. Usually, the, uh, the VPCs have a, a reasonable rate associated with them, and we, and we don't treat them. Obviously, if, if they are all ventricular, um, and I'll leave it up to the criticalists most of the time, but lidocaine seems to still be that first drug of choice. 
whether it's a bolus or whether it's a bolus and CRI, um, but just keep an eye out for those, and again, in any splenic, uh, splenectomy case. And then I try to feed these guys as soon as possible, and especially in these hemoabdomen patients, that source of bleeding is now removed. They feel so good so fast most of the time. I try to get them eating at home and uh, spend as much time as they can with the family in case it is something like hemangiosarcoma. So I, I hope that uh, that whirlwind tour uh, went well for everybody. Steve, I can tell you that whirlwind tour went amazing for everybody. This was an awesome podcast on the splenectomy technique, different types, different options. And I thank you for being part of the Vet Girl podcast series. Thank you again, Steve. <laughs>